0: As you will remember from John, we've been in John 7 and John 8, and both of these chapters actually exist in the same week of Jesus' life. We're basically six months away, seven months away from the death of Christ, and this is in the autumn time. It's the final festival of booths that Jesus himself is going to be attending and right at the end, on the seventh day, in the middle of the day, Jesus cries out at the top of his lungs. And everybody's looking at him and wondering what is going on. And if you remember, it was the priests who were carrying up the water that they were going to pour on the altar. And Jesus cries out in that moment, and he says, I am the living water. Taking the focus off of the ceremony and onto the Christ. At the end of the day, as the sun was going down, and as the lanterns were burning out for the last time in that particular ceremony, in that particular festival. As the lanterns were burning out, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and he says, I am the light of the world, taking the focus again off the ceremony and putting it onto him, the Christ. Jesus is showing that every single facet of the festival of booths is all about him. And that was critical teaching for the people who were there in Jerusalem because he was showing them who his identity is. He is the covenant God who's come to fulfill the covenant ceremonies, and not just one, but all the festivals are going to find their fulfillment in him. All the sacrifices are going to find their fulfillment in him. All the rituals, all the temples, all the tabernacles, all the synagogues, all of that, which we call the Mosaic Covenant, is going to find its fulfillment in him him. But, as we've seen, they weren't too happy about that. They should have been excited that their God had finally showed up in the flesh. The leaders should have been thrilled to step aside and make everything about the glory of Christ, but instead they rejected him. Jesus teaches them, and it throws the city into a panic of sorts. There's city-wide confusion Division, some mocked him, some hated him, some ridiculed him, and some believed in him, although falsely, which means that they were still alienated from him. The leadership rejected him. We know all about that. They're salivating in John 7 and John 8, ready in a moment's notice to murder the one that they should have worshipped. Now, there's this theme of rejection That permeates John 7 and John 8. And when it looks like for a moment is that they're the only ones who are doing the rejecting. They're rejecting Jesus. But as we learned several weeks ago, and just a couple weeks ago, in John 7 and in John 8, Jesus also is rejecting them. They're not only rejecting him, he is rejecting them. And he says so to them. He says, you're going to seek me? but you won't be able to find me. Where I am going, you cannot go. And he says, because of that inability that I've now pronounced over you, you will die in your sins. He doesn't say you maybe will die in your sins, or if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. He says you will die in your sins. What a severe pronouncement that Christ speaks over the city of Jerusalem for their sins. They are gonna die in their sins for four specific reasons, which you learned about a couple weeks ago. The first is they had a wrong view of Jesus, and if you remember in typical fashion, I put 14 sub points under that. <laughs> They're all important. They're gonna die in their sins because they have the wrong view of themselves, they have an inflated ego and a deflated look at Christ. They're gonna die in their sins because they've ignored divine revelation all throughout the Holy Scriptures, and they're going to die in their sin because they didn't just reject the doctrine of Christ, they rejected the person of Christ, and they rejected Him relationally. All four of those indictments are going to be what stands against them in eternity when they are sent to hell. Now, it seems like that some in John 8 are actually going to believe. John 8.31 kind of shows us this. It says, so jesus was saying to those jews who had believed if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine and then emphasis mine you will know the truth and then emphasis mine the truth will make you free the whole point jesus is saying is you say that you believe in me but you're actually not a true disciple of mine if you don't continue in the faith If you don't continue in obedience and worship and truth and faith, if you at any point in your life apostatize from me and you don't continue following me, then you were never a true disciple. That is what Jesus says. So that the clearest evidence of true saving faith is if you continue with Christ. They said that they believed and they don't make it out of chapter 8 before they're picking up stones to kill him. This is the first time that someone picked up a weapon against Jesus. The rejection is intensifying. Now, John 8, 33 through 59, that's the text that is before us, and that is the text we will not be covering today. It's a big text. And the reason we will not be covering it today is because it's a debate between Jesus and this crowd, And I actually think that there's something going on under the surface that we need to understand before we get to it. There's a reason why the crowd is confused. There's a reason why the crowd doesn't understand. There's a reason why Jesus and the crowd are both talking about Abraham. And there's a reason the crowd and them are both talking about fatherhood and paternity. There's covenantal elements underneath this text that if we don't understand as Americans, 2,000 years separated from covenant theology, then we're not going to understand why this is so significant. So what I want us to do today is I want us to bookmark John 8, 33 through 59. We'll deal with that in the coming weeks. And what I want us to do today is look at the mountain that's underneath it, which is what I like to call progressive covenantalism. I'll define that in a minute. Now, I am going to read the passage because I want you to notice the word Abraham and how many times it shows up. I'm going to read the passage because I want you to see how many times fatherhood issues come up. So I want you to mark those. I want you to put those in as a little footnote. We'll deal with them later, but we are going to read the passage. And then after we read the passage, we're going to deal with what's underneath it. Sound good? So if you will, turn with me to John 8, 33 through 59, as we examine these things together. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, I'm starting at 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they answered, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Did they not remember their history? How is it that you say that you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, then you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him, to them, if Abraham's children do the deeds of Abraham, or if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, then you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he is speaking out of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth and you do not believe me, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God, for the reason you do not hear them is because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So Jesus has accused them of being children of Satan. They're accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon. This argument is certainly intensifying. Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory, there is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, "'If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad.'" So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much. In this passage, in a conversation that you actually had. God, thank you so much for your Holy Spirit inspiring John to, to write this down for us. Thank you that we have what you wanted us to have from this conversation. Thank you that, that there is details in this passage that we'll be able to discuss today. Lord, I pray for your grace and for your mercy. Because in the complexity of this passage, Lord, I stand before you and just ask of your mercy that I would be able to communicate this rightly. Lord, let me not go to the left or to the right of what your truth is in your word. Lord, let me speak only what you want me to say. Lord, let that time of preparation and study have produced truth that is consistent with your word. And Lord... I pray that as we examine the truth of your word, that, Lord, we would actually grow together as disciples of Christ. Lord, let us not have the heart of the Pharisees and of the Jews who wish to constantly challenge you and mock you and misattribute your power to the power of of Satan. Lord, let us together as a humble little church Help us to see your word, believe it is true, and rejoice in it like Abraham, our father, did. In Christ's name, amen. Now, there's a lot that we need to understand here, and um, I do want us to get home before dinner. You laugh. I'm going to be talking about today an idea called progressive covenantalism, and what I mean by that is that God is telling the story of Biblical history, one covenant at a time. Meaning that history progresses as each covenant is given. And there's five covenants that are given in the Old Testament, and that really does tell us the entire story of the Old Testament. God gives five progressive covenants to man, and man, five times in a row, fails to live up to the covenant. So the Old Testament comes to a conclusion in chaos and disobedience. Also, the New Testament picks up the story of covenants because God makes unique and special promises to his people, and God never makes a promise that he does not intend on keeping. So because man cannot fulfill the promises of God in these five covenants that we're going to examine, Christ, in perfect successive order, walks his people back through those five covenants, and he will fulfill every single point. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the entire biblical story to understand the covenantal framework that's underneath it. And when we do that, I believe that it will help us next week or whenever we pick up this again to understand the confusion, covenantally speaking, that's going on in John 8. So, how does the Bible tell the story of God through covenants. Well, the very first covenant is the covenant with Adam. If you remember, God came and He gave His first covenant to a family. He gave it to Adam and Eve, the first family. And His covenant was that they were to be a blessed people. We're not going to be able to go through all the verses in these sections, but I'm going to allude to them. Genesis one twenty eight says that you will be blessed to be fruitful To multiply, to spread out to the ends of the earth, to rule over the earth and to subdue the earth, and to fill the world full of worshipers. So God's original design for humanity was that we would be fruitful. There's a few families here who are really knocking that out of the park. (laughs) That we would multiply, that we would rule over the earth and subdue it, meaning that we would have dominion. And that we would spread out to the ends of the earth and fill the world full of worshipers. That was the original design of God. That design, God said, was good. And Adam and Eve inherited that promise if they would only obey. Now, we know, of course, that Adam did not obey. Instead of Adam being fruitful, he ate the wrong fruit. He ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of his generation and his progeny and his ancestors multiplying worshippers across the face of the earth, they actually multiplied sinners across the face of the earth until the entire world was filled with sinners. And God actually said that he regretted the day that he made them. So they weren't fruitful. They didn't multiply. They didn't rule over the world. They were ruled by Satan, ruled by their sin. They didn't subdue the earth. They were subdued by the serpent. And they didn't fill the world with worshipers. They filled it with, well, they did. But people who didn't worship God, instead they worshiped Satan. Now God gives a near-time judgment. He causes the uh, animal to lose its life so that Adam and Eve can be clothed with the skins of the animal, and there's beautiful Christ language in that that we could explore. But as their family continues on, the judgment gets more severe. Instead of one animal losing its life, the entire globe is flooded with a global flood so that God can wash away the sins of this broken planet and so that he can start anew with another family. The first covenant is given to Noah and I mean to Adam and his family. The second covenant is given to Noah and his family. And just as a side note you'll see as you look at the study of covenants in the Bible, they're always given to families. Every single time. Noah was set apart by God and he was told that he would start a new generation of people who would follow after him. And he builds this ark. I just actually visited it. It's in Kentucky. Not the original. And he builds this for over 100 years. He preaches to people to repent and to turn from their sins. No one repents for 100 years of preaching. He and his family enter into the ark. The world is washed in destruction so that no one is left living. And then as soon as he exits the ark, when it comes to rest on Mount Ararat, God himself gives the covenant. And the covenant to Noah is actually the exact same covenant that was given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply, spread out to the ends of the earth, rule over it and subdue it, and create worshipers all across the planet. And the reason that God commanded him to do that is because God himself would bless them. So here you have the same structure a family is getting the covenant of God, a man is the federal head of his family, he's receiving the commands. And he's the same kind of person as Adam. Adam was made out of the dirt. Noah was a gardener who tilled the dirt. Adam was intoxicated with this fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat. So Noah plants a vineyard, makes wine, gets drunk, ends up naked and ashamed, just like Adam. And his son, Canaan, just like Adam's son, Cain, falls under the curse, a special curse. So here you have... The exact same result that's happening all over again. God repeats the second covenant to humans, and humans fail because humans always fail when it comes to upholding covenant. Adam's, or sorry, Noah's ancestors did just like Adam's ancestors did. But instead of filling the entire world with people who worshipped uh, the, the serpent, and instead of the world being destroyed by water, God promised he would never destroy the world by water again. But Noah's ancestors rebelled also but they just rebelled in different ways. God said spread out to the ends of the earth, and what did they do? They gathered themselves in a field somewhere and tried to build a tower to heaven because they wanted to be like God. And what's so fascinating about that is that God said he had to go down and look at it because it was so insignificant and puny that he could barely see it. God has perfect crystal clear vision. He can see across galaxies. No problem. It's irony. God is laughing at this pitiful little anthill that they have tried to erect to their own glory because their glory is so insignificant compared to his. And God judged that group of people. God judged Adam's generation by alienating them from God. Their relationship with God was severed. Noah's generation was punished by alienation from other people. So if you remember in the New Testament, it says the two great commands are love God and love neighbor. Adam is the reason why we can't love God. Noah's generation is the reason why there's division and racial hatred and brokenness and and division all over the world. Noah's generation was punished because they were divided up by language and by race and by all of these different factors so that they spread out across the world into little nations that hated each other. So the curse now has affected our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with other human beings. You see how the story is progressing through the Bible? Now, God wasn't finished. God could have said, I'm finished with these awful people, but He didn't. Out of all of the nations on earth, He chose a family, the third covenant, the family of Abraham. And He made dramatic promises To Abraham. And this was, in fact, actually a unique kind of covenant that God made with Abraham because Noah couldn't live up to the covenant. Adam couldn't live up to the covenant. So there's no hope that Abraham's going to live up to the covenant. So God does a unique covenant that doesn't rely on Abraham's ability or on his performance or on his um, capacity to be able to obey. God Himself made a covenant. That Abraham could not thwart, God Himself promised in Genesis 17, beautiful passage, that He would be ripped apart if the covenant with Abraham did not come to pass. He put all of the burden on Him. And what was that promise? The promise is that they would be fruitful, multiplying, spreading out to the ends of the earth as a blessing to the world. Same promise. This time, God is putting it on him. Now, there's seven actual promises in Genesis 12 that I want to go through. There's lots in Genesis 15 and 17 and 22. We're not going to go through all the promises God made to Abraham. But the reason why I want to go through these seven is because God never, ever leaves his promises unfulfilled. And that will become very important in just a moment. So God makes seven promises to Abraham. And those promises are this. I will make you into a great nation. I will make you into a blessed people. I will, make, I will give you a great name. I will make you a blessing to the nations. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and your family will bring blessing to all the families of the world. God is promising that one family, through their faithfulness, would bless the entire planet and every family on it, which is a pretty amazing promise. Now, it came to pass briefly and in a short term with the birth of Isaac. Isaac was born when Abraham was was an old man in his 90s. Sarah was an old woman in her early 90s. It was a miraculous birth. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons that became the children of Israel, those 12 sons eventually at the end of the book of Genesis became 70. Seventy people in this family who were waiting on the promises that God gave to Abraham, a great nation, blessed people, that their name would be great. These promises they were waiting on at the end of Genesis. And when you flip over the page to the book of Exodus, it says God increased them and greatly multiplied them and made them fruitful. So His promises are coming true as soon as you turn the page to the book of Exodus. Exodus. So, God is making his people fruitful and multiplying them and doing the things that he promised to Abraham. Now, there's a problem because they got enslaved and they were under the rule of a tyrant named Pharaoh. And even when they come out of slavery, they don't ever fully fulfill the promises that God gave to Abraham. So, they failed ultimately. But God is the one who is faithful. And God is the one who has a plan, and he's going to rescue them out of their slavery in Egypt, and he's going to bring them to a mountain called Sinai. This is Exodus 19, Exodus 18. So now we've gone through the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham. Now we're in the middle of Exodus, and God is going to give this people his law. Now, you ask yourself the question, why would God make another covenant when the covenant that he had with Abraham was already good enough? Because God wasn't ready to fulfill the covenant with Abraham yet. God wasn't ready to bring the seed of Abraham, which the New Testament tells us is Christ. So, because God wasn't ready to bring Abraham's covenant to fulfillment, his people had to have a way to live in the presence of a holy God. Because they, by themselves, were not holy. So as God's people were waiting on God to fulfill the promises to Abraham, they needed a covenant to be able to bring them into relationship with God. And that covenant was the covenant with Moses. That covenant was the covenant of temples and sacrifices and blood offerings, and and all of these different things that were going to make them a unique people who could live in the presence of God. Because you and I, and them included, could not live in the presence of God if there was not a covenant. We're not holy people, as we talked about before. Now, in that covenant, there were so many different elements. It was an entire religious and geopolitical and social structure that covered every facet of their lives so that they could live in the presence of God until God brought about the promises of Abraham. He gave them a law, and the law had three parts. At first, it was a moral law, and the moral law was given so that the people could live moral lives and not sin. He gave them the Ten Commandments, and He gave them other commandments in Scripture where, you say, where it says, For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Do this. Those are moral laws. He gave them those laws so that they would not sin, but they did sin. So He also gave them a second type of law, which is a ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was to, if they sinned, to bring them back in right fellowship with God. Because if, as you notice in the book of Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron's son. Aaron is the high priest. They're trying to serve God in their own way and fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. So it's a big deal to make sure that they are in right standing with God. So God gives them ceremonial laws. These are things like sacrifices, water cleansings, oil anointings, washings, things like that. To forgive them of their sin, restore them to God. The final set of laws that God gave them was a national, civil, civic law because they were a nation. God promised that they would be a nation to Abraham. So they needed a governmental structure. They needed laws that that created just laws for a just society so that they could actually be a nation in the midst of nations that hated God. So they had a governmental structure. They had a, a system of sort of welfare where they looked after the widows and the orphans. Not modern day welfare. I'm not saying that. Their law helped them live morally, religiously, and socially in a world that did not know God. They had a temple so that they could meet with God who was living in their midst. They had sacrifices in case they sinned. They had priests who would mediate between them and God, and they had festivals that would restore the brokenness in their society. Remember Noah's sin and his family's sin caused horizontal relationship to be broken. Well, festivals brought community together. Adam's sin brought vertical damage between him and God. Festivals always pointed upward to God to show that God would be the one who would restore us back to himself. So every single facet of the Mosaic Covenant was only meant to be a temporary covenant so that these people could live in God's presence until God fulfilled the promises of that he gave to Abraham. That is what the Mosaic Covenant is all about. That's it. It was never meant to be a permanent covenant. It was never meant to to be lifted above so that the Jews would be so prideful in their religion. It was a temporary band-aid to hold them until Christ came. That's what the Mosaic Covenant was supposed to be about. But they didn't follow it. There's a pattern here. Adam was given wonderful commands. He didn't follow it. Noah was given wonderful commands. He didn't follow it. Abraham given wonderful commands. His generations didn't follow it. Moses and the people of Israel given wonderful commands. They didn't follow them. By the time you get to the book of Numbers, they're about 14 steps away from Mount Sinai and they're already complaining against God and challenging His authority. You get to the book of uh, Joshua. After an entire generation of people died, just... 15 steps inside of or outside of the land, they saw that, they knew that, then they get into the book of Joshua and they still are not following the commands of God. You go to the book of Judges, they're not following the commands of God. Ruth is set in the time of Judges. People are not obeying the commands of God. And perhaps the greatest rebellion in the Old Testament was when they rejected God and they wanted a king which takes us to the fifth and final covenant. You have to understand that Israel was a theocratic nation. They were a nation that was ruled directly by God. So there were no votes. You had no representation in Congress. You didn't, your taxation didn't give you a voice as our New England ancestors would love to chant. You had a single king. He was sovereign. Your opinion did not matter. You followed God. And they were ruled by him. Now that may sound stifling, but if you think about who would you rather be ruled by? Would you rather be ruled by man or would you rather be ruled by an all-powerful, benevolent, loving, wonderful, merciful, gracious God? His rule would trump any ruler that has ever lived, and I don't mean that as a pun. But yet they rejected it again and again. By the time of Samuel... They're rejecting God. They're saying, give us a king so that we can be like all the nations. They're not saying, give us a king so that that king can help us be more like God because we, we can't do this on our own. They're saying, give us a king so that we can look like the pagans. Give us a king so that we can look like the people who hate you, God. We are tired of your rule. Give us what we want. What a rejection. And yet, God, this is the fifth time that God could have said, I'm done with you and strike you down. And yet God in His grace gave them what they asked for. Sometimes that is a wonderful grace from God when He gives you what you ask for so that you realize how stupid your request actually was. (laughs) That was the whole reign of Saul. But then His grace actually goes much further than that. And He gives them David. He gives them a man who wants to follow God. They give them a man who wants to help them Live in relationship with God. And God already knew that they were going to do this. Moses' covenant has a section in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, that says, you're going to ask for a king. And when you do, this is the kind of king that I want you to have. So the exception clause was already there. God defines what kind of king that they want, he wants them to have. And David was the epitome of that kind of king. This is what it says. When you enter into the land which the Lord your God gives you, And you possess it, and you live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord chooses. One from among your countrymen. And you shall set a king over yourself. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Nor shall he cause his people to return to Egypt and multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, David. David got in some trouble there. Or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Solomon got in trouble there. Nor shall it come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, Now it shall come about that he shall write for himself a copy of this law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The king will write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now listen, even though David was not perfect, David did this. David, it is clear, because in the Psalms he says, I delight in the law of the Lord day and night. He had a copy. He obeyed what Deuteronomy is saying. And he loved God's word. He was actually fortunate enough to write some of God's words in the book of Psalms. He wrote a lot. David, one of the very first things that he did in his kingdom is that the Ark of the Covenant was lost. The people of Israel had treated it like it was commonplace garbage and trash. And the Philistines had actually stolen the Ark of the Covenant. That is the greatest piece of furniture that goes inside the deepest room of the temple where God himself would hover over this golden box and dwell with his people. So the people didn't have God because they had treated his presence like trash. So the first thing that David does is he he puts together a delegation and he goes after the Ark. He doesn't get it right at first. He sends them on a journey with an ox cart. God never commanded an ox cart. God commanded the priest to carry it. And because David broke the law, God struck down his worship leader, Uzzah. So if ever you see Derek and I with an ox cart, (laughs) tell him to walk away. But David went back, and it says in Chronicles that he read the law. And then he went back and he looked at the commands that God had given. And he went back and he did it right the next time. And he sent the priest and they carried the ark into the city. And the city was rejoicing. David was dancing. David led his people in worship. David is the prototypical Israelite king who does what God has said that he should do. So you think that things are looking up. David at the end of his life is gathering wood and stone and gold and silver and all of these things so that he can build a house for God. God says no. Because you're a man of war, but I'm going to let your son build this house. And when Solomon builds this house, fire itself comes down from heaven and eats up like 15,000 or 20,000 offerings right there in the midst of the people. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of Leviticus when God's fire came down in front of the tent of meeting. God is confirming that this King and his son are in right relationship with him and he's confirming the Mosaic Covenant right there to their very eyes. You think, gosh, they're on the right path. They're a nation now. They have a great name. The world is coming to Jerusalem to see the blessings of God under the reign of Solomon. You look through the promises that are given to Abraham and it looks like they're about to get completed. It looks like God is going to finish the job with Solomon and then Solomon takes his life in idolatry and in thousands of wives, the whole thing comes falling apart. The kingdom severs into two particular kingdoms and the rest of the story of the Old Testament is downhill from there. Hill, not heel. I've been in North Carolina for a long time. Now, before we get to the failure... We have to see that God himself, during the reign of David, gave the fifth covenant. And the fifth covenant to David was a simple covenant. He just said that you will always have a son to reign on the throne in Jerusalem. That was the covenant. If you obey me, you obey my command, you will always have a son, David. You will never not be without a child on the throne. But yet, that's the tragedy of the Old Testament, isn't it? That as soon as Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over, the nation splits into two nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is so bad that God divorces them and He destroys them. The southern kingdom Judah and Benjamin are so bad that God exiles them and God takes away their throne so that when they get back In in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they rebuild their temple. Guess what doesn't fall from the sky this time? The fire of God. And guess who doesn't get to sit on the throne anymore? The son of David. And for 400, 500 years, the throne sat empty in Jerusalem because of the unfaithfulness of Judah. So as you've seen, we've just went from Genesis all the way to Malachi. Through the story of five covenants that God has given, man began as a people who were to be blessed by God, they fell. Noah was to be blessed by God and to bless the world. They failed. Abraham, same thing. David or Moses, same thing. David, same thing. So that when the Old Testament ends, it doesn't end with a blessed, fruitful, multiplying, spreading out to the world kind of people. It ends with a confused people, with a people who are broken in their sin and a people who can no longer hear God. Malachi was written 400 years before Jesus. And for 400 years, there was silence. They did not hear from God There was no prophecy. There was no word. They existed, alienated from God in a way that they had never done before. Now, if that's the end of the story, it's a tragedy. A people given so much, and yet they end up with nothing. The point of the story, though, is not to view it as a tragedy. It's part one of a two-part drama. And the second part is about how God himself, because human beings cannot fulfill the promises of God, they can't live up to the covenants of God, God himself would come. And he would one by one by one fulfill every single covenant in order so that when the end of human history occurs, every promise of God will have been fulfilled. So let's look at that for a moment. Let me start with an example. How do I know that Jesus is going to fulfill all these covenants? Not just because I'm telling you. There's an example. In the Christian church, I would say probably the most hated section of the Bible is uh, the genealogies. You can raise your hand in agreement if you agree with me. They're, They're tough. But there's two great genealogies in the New Testament. And in those two great genealogies, God himself shows us what his plan for all of human history is. You're like, it's just a list of names. It's more. It's more. So let's look at that for a second. Matthew begins with a genealogy. And that genealogy is from Jesus to David. And that is to show us that Jesus is the true son of David. He's the true king that's coming in the line of David. He's the one who's going to finally occupy the the empty throne. Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus being affiliated with King David, the final covenant. And it ends with Jesus in Matthew 28 saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. That's kingship language. And then he ascends to heaven and he sits on the throne of God. Matthew's gospel is showing us how Jesus Christ is going to fulfill the covenant of David. David. And he does it with a genealogy. You can't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. It's like, yeah, you skipped that part. Look how important it is. (laughs) Luke. Luke also has a genealogy. His genealogy is a little different. His genealogy takes Jesus all the way back to Adam. And you're like... Why would Luke do something different? Why would he he tell the story of Jesus' lineage? Not towards David, but towards Adam. And I think it's because in both of these Gospels, you have the last covenant being fulfilled by Christ and the first covenant being fulfilled by Christ, which means that all the covenants are going to be fulfilled by Christ. Think about what Luke is doing in his Gospel He begins with Jesus being affiliated with Adam, the man who lived in the garden. And when Jesus dies and rises from the dead, he welcomes the thief into paradise. It starts with a garden. It ends with a garden because Jesus is bringing the new creation. So he's not only going to fulfill the covenant with David, he's going to fulfill the covenant with Adam and he's going to fulfill all the covenants, like we've said, in order. So children, read the genealogies. Parents, Read the genealogies. Because covenant happens through family. They're not just words on a page. They mean something. So let's go for a moment now successively through the covenants. The last covenant was David, so we start with that. How does Jesus fulfill the covenant of David? He was born in the royal city in Bethlehem. When he rose, or when he became an adult, He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he starts teaching people kingdom passages. You don't teach people kingdom passages saying that you're the leader of it if you don't think you're the king. Midway through his career, he's talking about that I'm the king. They tried to make him a political king, but he said, no, I don't want that. I'm a bigger king, better king than that. At the end of his life, they... One of his followers, Mary, anoints him just like a king would be anointed in the Old Testament. He is crucified in his temporary throne as a Roman cross. Not showcasing his weakness, showcasing his victory. He's put in a royal tomb. He rises from the dead and he says all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Then he raises... And then he ascends to heaven, he sits on the throne, and he's reigning over his kingdom. The whole gospel message is about Jesus Christ fulfilling the covenant of David. No longer is David's throne empty. For the last 2,000 years, the covenant of David has been fulfilled, and it always will be fulfilled because David will always have a son who sits on the throne because the new Jerusalem is where Jesus is sitting, and he is reigning over his people now and for forever and We will see him face to face, our king. So Jesus is fulfilling every aspect of the covenant of David. Well, what about the covenant with Moses? The covenant with Moses was a, a very difficult, complex covenant. How could Jesus fulfill all the elements of it? He does. He does. He's the true law of God. He says that in His Word. He's the one who obeyed God perfectly. He was the only one who was ever clean and without sin and never needed a sacrifice to purify Himself. He's the only light that lived for the benefit of the Gentiles. He's the true Sabbath, the true Passover, the true First Fruits, the true Pentecost, the true Feast of Trumpets. He's the true atonement that represented the perfect atonement that they practiced every single year in Jerusalem at the Day of Atonement. He's the true spiritual covering. He's the true sacrifice, the true offering, the true priest, the true testimony the true presence, the true altar, the true cleansing, the true food. Every element of Moses' covenant is fulfilled by Christ. So that our holiness is now bound up in Him, not in the law. Our justification is now ransomed for us by Christ so that now we are counted as righteous, not by obedience, but by His obedience. All of that, for us who have been saved, has been perfectly and totally Fulfilled so that the law can no longer condemn you. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because Christ fulfilled it all. Do you see how he's marching back through history? He's the perfect king. That covers the section of failure in the Old Testament from Malachi to To Mount Sinai. He's the true and greater Moses who fulfills all of the things that happened at Mount Sinai. What about Abraham? What about the covenant of Abraham? What is Jesus doing with the covenant of Abraham? We've seen a pattern. Is he going to continue it? Well, I would say yes. And I would say not yet. This is the covenant that you and I currently live in. Now you're saying, as a good Christian and as a good theologian, budding theologian, you're saying, no, 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 we live in the new covenant. You're right, but Paul says that we live as children of Abraham. We've been grafted into the family of Abraham. God's promises have not been fulfilled in the covenant of Abraham, so therefore Jesus Christ is going to still fulfill the promises of Abraham. So we are living in the unique era of time where we are in Jesus' family, And we are moving forward with Him as He fulfills the promises of Abraham. And all of those promises will be fulfilled before the end comes. He will make us into a great nation. The church who's been grafted into true Israel. He will cause God's people to be blessed. You once were cursed. You once were far off. You once were enemies of God. But now you've been blessed in every blessing by Christ. Do you see how the promise of Abraham applies to you? He will cause his people to have a great name. There's no name under heaven that's greater than Jesus. So we have the promise of Abraham in us because of Christ. He will cause God's people to be a blessing to the world. The last 2,000 years is not the story of defeat. If you believe that, you've read your history the wrong way. The church has for 2,000 years, not perfectly, not beautifully, sometimes ugly, but we have made progress because Christ is the one who will build His church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. The world is better today because of the existence of the church. So His great name is being advanced to the nations. Promise four. God's people will be a blessing to the world. Yes. Promise five, he will bless those who bless God's people. That's a tough one because we live in space and time and we're like, we're not being blessed right now, so why aren't they being cursed right now? Hold your breath. God is faithful. It says in Romans 12 that he will judge. We forfeit justice to God because God is a better judge. These things will happen, if not now, in eternity. But the final one is the one that really has not been fulfilled yet. The final promise to Abraham. Now here's the question that you have to ask yourself as a Christian. If God has not fulfilled a promise that he made to Abraham, then will he draw history to a close without fulfilling it? Because if he does, then he would be made a liar. God, the seventh promise, and it's one we don't normally think of, that he will... Bless the world and all the families in it. We don't normally think like that. We think he's going to return. He's going to put Antichrist under his feet. He's going he's to overthrow the pagan governments of the world. We don't think that a promise that God made that all the families on earth will be blessed actually has to happen before he comes back. So he's not coming back until this promise occurs. Think about that. After that, after all the families on the earth have been blessed by Christ, and I don't know what all means there. Does that mean every single family on earth is going to be blessed and there's no unbelievers and then the end comes? I don't know. Does that mean that there's one family in every neighborhood? Does that mean there's one family in every city or one family in every nation? I don't know, and I'll let the Lord handle that. But I know that that has to happen Before he can come back, and that's not a story of defeat, that's a story of victory. After that happens, and the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, he's going to fulfill the Noahic covenant. He's not going to destroy the world with water, he's going to destroy the world with fire. And he's not going to destroy the world with fire as an act of judgment, he's going to destroy the world with fire as an act of purification. Because Noah's family multiplied sinners across the face of the earth. If Abraham's covenant is true, then believers will be multiplied across the face of the earth and the end will come as a purification so that then Adam's covenant will be made true so that you and I will live in a garden with God forever. So the entire history of the old testament is man's progressive failure with the covenants of god and the entire history of the new testament is christ's progressive successes with the covenants of god marching us from hell on earth to eternal paradise with him That's how the covenants work. That's how Jesus is redeeming all of history. That's why I say that it's progressive covenantalism. Because only in Christ will the promises of God be made true. John 8. We haven't talked about John 8 yet. John 8 exists in a period of time where Jesus has not died yet. I said this to our small group on Thursday. John's Gospel, except 19, 20, 21, and 22, are Old Testament Scriptures. Think about it. Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't rose from the dead. He hasn't made forgiveness of sins. He hasn't atoned for anyone yet. That's Old Testament. The New Covenant hasn't been enacted yet. Most of the Gospels exist in the Old Covenant era. Even though in your Bibles they're listed in this artificial designation called the new covenant or the new testament john 8 exists where david's covenant has not been fulfilled yet christ is not sitting on the throne it exists in a covenant where moses is still the primary covenant that they're going to have to live by they still go to the temple they still offer sacrifices they still do all of that And they're waiting on the promises of Abraham to occur, but they're waiting on them through the lens of Moses. And they look at Jesus and they say, how can you say that you will make us free? We've never been enslaved. And Jesus is like, you're under the law of Moses. You are bound to obedience that you can't do. That's why I'm coming to die. And they're like, no, thanks. We don't need you. We got it. We're free. And then they die in their sins. Christ is coming to set them free from the law of Moses, and yet they reject him and say, no, 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 we got it. Thanks there, Jesus. So we'll deal with that next week. What I want to say now in closing is we have to understand this idea of covenant. Almost, I've never heard a sermon on it, so I'll admit that to you. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on covenants. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon that tries to deal with the whole Bible in one sermon but I think it's important and I think we have to understand it why because we need to know where our place in the story is if we're just sitting at home watching the news angry frustrated scared and saying Jesus just come and save me and rescue me out of this mess that I'm in then we don't understand the Bible because he didn't make us to live like that he made us to be the people of Abraham let's look at that for a second the first promise of Abraham is that he's going to make us into a nation does he do that 1 Peter 2, nine says, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You and I are in a nation. A people of God's own possession so that you and I may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You and I are in the nation of God with a citizenship in heaven. Don't you think knowing that would actually change the way that we live? Absolutely. We're not orphans, we're not vagabonds, and we're not foreigners. We have a citizenship that's in heaven and we are sojourners here on earth. Yes, but we serve a living king. The second promise is that God is going to make his people blessed. Have we been blessed in Christ? Absolutely, we're not cursed. We're not downtrodden. We're not defeatist. We're not depressed. It says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That means you and I right now have heaven's blessings coursing through our veins even though we're not yet there. He makes this even more clear in Galatians 3, 6-9, and verse 29, he says, Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Sons and daughters. You and I are sons and daughters of Abraham if we believe. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now go down to verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant according to the promise. You and I live in the covenant of Abraham right now. And we are children of Abraham by the promise of Christ. And we're waiting on the promises of Abraham that only Christ will fulfill. What's the third promise? It will cause His people to have a great name. We already mentioned this. There's no name under heaven greater than Jesus We've been given a new name. Our old name is no more. We have a new identity. And over the course of history, His name will grow stronger, greater, and more multiplied across the face of the earth. Fourth promise. Christ will cause God's people to be a blessing to the nations. Mark 16 ends His gospel. Jesus or Mark ends His gospel with that we are to take the gospel to the nations. Matthew 28 says that we are to make disciples of all the nations. Acts 1.8 says we are to be a witness to all the nations. Romans 1.16 says, We take the gospel that is the power of God for the nations. You and I exist to be witnesses of the glorious salvation that we have received. And we are to take that message to the nations. Why? Because God assumes that He's going to fulfill His Abrahamic promise that all the nations on earth will be blessed in Him. We bless the world when we preach the gospel. We do not bless the world when we are political. When we are secular, when we are woke, when we are open and affirming, when we're amenable, when we're dependable, when we're sociable, when we're vocational, or when we're relational, we bless the world when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Only His gospel has the power to save, so only that gospel is what we shall proclaim. Promise 5 and 6 is Christ is going to bless those who bless God's people and curse those who curse God's people. That hasn't fully happened yet. We know that it will because God promised it. And promise number seven, Christ will bring blessings to all the families on earth. We do not, as Christians, have permission to sit idly by on the sidelines of our faith. We as Christians do not have permission to have a defeatist attitude when it comes to the Bible. We as Christians do not have permission To walk through the world as a pessimist and say, well, God's just going to rapture me out of this hell hole tomorrow. We don't have permission to live that way. Genesis 12, 1-3 is the promise that God is going to bless the earth through Christ. Galatians 3.16 makes this abundantly clear. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He doesn't say to his seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. And that seed is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to fulfill promise seven, promise six, five, four, three, two, one, and every single promise of every single covenant. And that means that the world will eventually be blessed by him. All the families of the earth will be blessed by him. So we have to have a view of that. And we have to not sit on the sidelines and work towards that. We can't pray, God, rescue me out of this. We need to pick up our hammer and nails and and our tools and get to work. We have to live like God is going to bless the world. We have to be a blessing to the world believing He's going to bless it. We have no recourse to sit and do nothing. We believe He will do this and we will live like He really is going to do it. Now, I bring this up today for three reasons. Number one, it's going to help us next time we're in John. Number two, because I want you to understand where you live and the promises of God. You're called into the family of Abraham to be a blessing to the world. I think that's important. And I wanted for third to encourage you not to be depressed when we live in a chaotic world. Don't listen to the news and Daily Wire and everything else. I like Daily Wire, don't get me wrong. But don't let it steal your joy. Don't let it Cause you to be frustrated and disappointed and broken and confused those things are from the enemy disappointment confusion disaster depression all those things are from satan not god you are children of abraham now let's live like that let's pray lord thank you so much for your bible thank you so much for the revelation that it is all about you christ Lord, I pray that we would find comfort in the fact that we are in Abraham's family, that we have been grafted in as a wild olive tree, but yet all the same we have been grafted in because of you. Lord, I pray that we would live with our head held high and our hearts full and our hands busy about the work, that we would work believing that you're going to bless the world that we would live believing that you're going to bless the world and that we would spend our days invested in that and not in everything else. In Christ's name, amen.